This episode of She Explorers is brought to you by Smartwool, a company that makes ethically sourced merino wool performance clothes that uncomplicate your adventures. Smartwool's Director of Sustainability, Robin Hall, explains. From product to supply chain to office environments, we always have our eye on uh, how we can do better um, and how we can help influence and work within within the outdoor industry and with our consumers to help ensure that we all have a wonderful place to play outside for many generations to come. One of the ways Smartwool does this is by partnering with New Zealand Merino to source ZQ certified merino wool. Stay tuned for later in the episode. We'll get the opportunity to hear from Robin about why Smartwool believes it's simply the right thing to do. Learn more at smartwool.com. Go far, feel good. Boots are meant to take you somewhere. Since 1932, Danner has been living by that belief, which is why they've been crafting boots with purpose and integrity in Portland, Oregon, so that you can head out on any adventure knowing you're showing up prepared for whatever's down the road. Danner also so strongly believes in the quality of their footwear that they are committed to recrafting your old USA-made Danner boots into ones that are better than new. Because whether it's a shale-covered path, a dirt road, the base of a waterfall, or the top of a mountain, your boots are your vessel to get you somewhere you've always wanted to experience. To find out more and see their entire line of women's boots, visit danner.com. That's D-A-N-N-E-R.com. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. Do you still find that hiking is one of the places that gives you room to to think? Oh, absolutely. Being on a trail or even just being in nature is the perfect expression of presence for me. You can hear everything. You can hear each leaf as it rustles overhead. So you can literally hear the wind, right? Uh, You hear each twig that you step on, you hear the babbling brook, you smell the forest, and it is all about the presence. And for me, when I used food to push away emotions, to push away the present, the thing that I was struggling with at that very moment, it is the absolute antithesis of that. It is the absolute opposite of pushing away. It is all about taking in all that surrounds me. And so hiking and being in the outdoors is all about that for me all the time. This is Cara Richardson-Whiteley, author, speaker, and self-described plus-size adventurer. Before we talked, I got the opportunity to read her memoir, Gorge, which is about hiking Mount Kilimanjaro. It's another window into trekking one of the world's tallest mountains while plus-size, Earlier this year, Deandra Oliver shared her experience on this podcast with the Curvy Killy crew for an immersive audio story. Gorge stands apart in that it not only covers the hike, which was Kara's third time on the mountain, but it also dives into her life with binge eating disorder, a condition she didn't have a name for at the time and that still isn't talked about enough. Today, Kara is determined to raise awareness for binge eating disorder through her work. There's something I want you to keep in mind as you listen. Like a lot of us, Kara doesn't have a static relationship with hiking, her body and mind, or food. It's forever unfolding, and it's very personal. Also, this conversation could be triggering for someone with a disordered relationship with food. So a heads up if you need to skip this one. 
In Gorge, Kara writes about the persona of a hiker girl. Oh, gosh. How I would describe a hiker girl has changed over the years. I mean, when I first started hiking, the way that I saw and looked at hiker girls was based on the images that you would see of hiker girls, you know, Patagonia models, people who were out in the wilderness wearing nothing but a sports bra and a pair of shorty Adidas shorts. But now I look at a hiker girl, I look at that word and I see myself within that definition. But it took, you know, me going to the woods and buying into the culture by buying things that that fit me. And that would be like a water bottle or a cliff bar or something that I could bring out and start to feel like I fit the mold. And the more steps that I took outside, the more that I fit within that definition. Hmm. So a bit of it was defining it for yourself versus fitting a mold that you would have seen represented elsewhere. Right. I mean, it took a long time for me to to feel like that I belonged in the woods. And still to this day, just because my my body shape is a lot like a mountain, you know, very small on top and big at the bottom. It's actually a lot like Kilimanjaro. And when some kids see me on the trail, they'll say like, why is that lady so fat or something like that? So I'm reminded that I look like someone who doesn't necessarily belong, or at least with the images of who belonged on the mountain. So I need to reinforce with every step and every adventure that I take that I do belong. And the more I feel that way, the more others are welcome to the trails. So by the earlier definition, you know, growing up as a a young girl, do you think you might not have seen yourself as, as a hiker girl? Well, I think that my definition was marked by my own failures on the trail. So even though I went to places like Camel's Hump, when I grew up in Vermont, hiking Camel's Hump was a a fourth grade field trip. (laughs) And yes, I was one of the slower hikers and the teacher kind of stayed back with me, but I finished it. But by the time I was in college, my binge eating disorder was in full force. Depression, anxiety kind of were the, the dovetails with that as well. And so I wasn't moving very much. So when it was this gorgeous fall day in June, my friends wanted to climb Camel's Hump. And so I thought, oh, yeah, sure, I'm going to come along. Then, of course, I couldn't make it up the mountain. And so I was really discouraged by the fact that I couldn't I couldn't hike anymore. And so my definition was not only marked by society, but also what I felt like my body could do. So it took a lot of courage in actually just getting out there to feel like I truly belonged again. And you do talk a lot on your social media platforms and through the book too about the small steps that you can take. So did you feel like it was a cumulative process to finding strength in your body through hiking? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of my first steps was to buy this great book. I think it's 50 Hikes in New Jersey. And, you know, the great news is for a starting hiker in New Jersey, I mean, there's a lot of flat trails. (laughs) So, Mm. you know, you can go to these trails that are rated easy. And and yes, it's like a, a preschool's field trip, right? It's 20 minutes in and out. But in the beginning, 
um, I would go suited up like I was going to hike Everest or, or something massive. I had like a, you know, bear bell and all the different things <laughs> like in navigation systems in case I somehow stepped off trail and ended up, I don't know, in the next town over, but I was ready. And each time I checked off one of those hikes, it led me to the next. And so, yes, it's a lot of small steps that lead to the to the cumulative effort. And so when I first started hiking, Kilimanjaro wasn't anywhere on the map for me. It wasn't at all. And so my first big adventure was taking on Camel's Hump again, because I remembered as I, as I started hiking seriously, I thought to myself, well, I need a big goal. And I thought to myself, well, the nemesis for me was Camel's Hump, because in college, instead of that, moment where I had to turn back being that Oprah aha moment that we're all seeking. <laughs> I went down to the bottom of the mountain and I looked at the contents of my backpack, which was a diet Coke and a pound of M&Ms. And I binged my way through how I felt mm. instead of saying, this is where it all changes. This is where it's all going to come together for me. And I spent easily another decade after that point just staying in that space of where I had a disappointment, a success, anything, that it was followed by a binge instead of feeling what I felt. And so when I started hiking, I thought, well, okay, the thing that I need to conquer and to get through is Camel's Hump. And that's why I did that as a sunrise hike on the eve of my 31st birthday. It's worth emphasizing here that when Cara talks about binging a pound of M&Ms, She's not doing it because she's hungry or as a treat or as a one-off occurrence. Kara did hike Camel's Hump on her 31st birthday and Kilimanjaro for the first time when she was 32. Her third trip to Kili came in 2011. In the intervening years, her weight fluctuated and the binge eating continued. The title for the book Gorge is a double entendre. It means the low point between two mountains and also to fill oneself with food. I asked Kara why she wanted to include her relationship with food in the book. I actually used the term food addiction when I asked because it's what was described in the book. Though, as you'll hear, Kara's understanding of this has shifted. Here's Kara. It was incredibly important to me to highlight my relationship with food. And I have to give credit to my agent, Kim Perel. Kim was the first champion of my book, and she loved my story because it definitely was one of those stories where somebody didn't fit the mold. But, you know, when I first wrote the version of Gorge, or at least the book proposal, it was all about, you know, a uh, fat woman on the mountain, right? It's a, a plus size person taking on this big adventure. And isn't that amazing? And what she said when she looked at the draft was, you know, hey, this is great. And I love you. And I love your courage and all this stuff. But you're, you're leaving the most important part out. She said, you kind of talk about food, but you don't really, really talk about food. I need to know the most gritty details of your relationship with food. Just go there because two thirds of the United States struggles with obesity or weight or maybe doesn't struggle with it, but they fall within a category where they're beyond the what people consider a normal size, right? And so it doesn't matter what you put on the table, what you put in this book, there are going to be people nodding their heads in acknowledgement and saying, that's, that's my story as well. And so that kind of gave me permission to write 
the most challenging parts, such as, you know, the night before the second climb up Kilimanjaro and the pants that wouldn't fit and the horrible things that happened after that point. Was it difficult to kind of share some of some of those things? Because I know that eating was a pretty private thing for you. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I first wrote Gorge, I used the term food addiction. And now I think it's kind of evolved for me to use the word binge eating disorder. But either way, either way, it doesn't matter what you call it, compulsive overeating, emotional eating, binge eating disorder, binging, whatever word that comes to mind and feels good for you to describe if this is something that you struggle with. But the most important part for me was that it was all secret and it was all just loaded down with shame and embarrassment for me being an otherwise capable human being, right? I had a daughter, I had a job, I took the recycling out and yet I was absolutely conquered by a cupcake. But not just like, I'm gonna eat the cupcake, but when I do, I'm gonna be so riddled with shame and guilt that I'm either going to try to replace it or go to the store, try to replace it, find something else, eat all of that by the time I get home. And so it was just this cycle of shame and secrecy that the more that I actually talk about it, the more healing that it is, and the more that it takes away the power that food had over me and the things that I wanted to do. I I know for me as a reader, I really appreciated the way that one, just your honesty throughout and, and just in reading reviews of the book. I know other people appreciate the honesty, too, because I know in a memoir, that's the most important thing. But I assume it's the hardest thing to do. But I really appreciated how you described the fact that you wanted to numb yourself and that throughout the day, it was, you know, if you thought about a normal day at home, a lot of it was about not feeling and that can be a fairly universal thing. So that's we said that people can read the book and nod their heads. There are so many ways that we numb ourselves. And it was really insightful to be able to read that. And I really appreciated reading that. Oh, thank you. I mean, I think what the most important thing that I've done moving beyond the book is to share my story as a plus size adventurer as a way to help other people move mountains in their lives. And what I mean by that is that we all have obstacles. We all are riddled with shame or we have ways that we numb ourselves or the way that most importantly, the way that we put things in front of the things we truly want to do, the things that bring us joy. And so I do that via speaking engagements. I do that through a series of retreats that I'm launching this year called Move Mountains, because it is universal that we don't accept ourselves as we are, as worthy to do the things that we love, of the things that we feel like we want to be a part of, but many of the barriers are within ourselves. And a lot of those barriers are potentially internalized from from society and, and the way that society treats um, certain um, marginalized groups, like be it someone who's plus size or someone who doesn't fit the, you know, the quote unquote mold of like the hiker girl. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But the other part of it is that, you know, so many of us have grown up in broken households. And I don't just mean broken as in marriage. I mean, sometimes you hear messages from family members 
that reinforce that doubt. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you've been a, in a school and you've had an experience over something that reinforces that doubt. And so my mission, in addition to changing the conversation about obesity, that it's way more complicated than eat less, move more. But it's also so that we can build resiliency from the past and have the strength to move forward in the direction that we want to. You you wrote in the book and that you spent 10 years um, working as a journalist and concentrating on other people. And, and now you're using your story to help others. Was there a, a catalyst for that shift for you in terms of um, not that you're not still focusing on others, <laughs> but um, <laughs> in in wanting to tell your story and wanting to share that and, and help others through through your own experiences versus purely reporting? Well, that's an interesting question because I was just in Ventura where that was my first big newspaper job at the Ventura County Star. And I had to run a couple errands. My my cousin-in-law, Stacy, she's actually on the cover of the book. She lives there. So I was staying with her and I had to go make some uh, copies of something. And so I was in this plaza where I used to binge. And so it was so awkward and strange to feel in a different place, but it be in the same place. Because when I was, when I was a journalist, the one thing that I was really, really good at was talking to people who were in pain. And if somebody struggled, uh, suffered a loss, for example, if somebody was murdered or died in a car crash, I was often the person who was sent out to say, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. I don't want people to remember people because of this accident, shooting, murder. I want people to remember them for their life. Tell me their story. And it was something that I was really good at absorbing people's pain, but I didn't have a really positive way of dealing with it. So that's where that's where a lot of real deep binging happened was there. And, I, you know, I was nervous. It was my first job. And so it was really kind of painful to be back in that place physically to kind of recognize and acknowledge the behavior that went on back then. But to your question, when was there a shift? Well, the shift was mostly because I got laid off, <laughs> like so many journalists do. Um But even before then, I was really finding new ways to tell my story. I had written Fat Woman on the Mountain, which was my self-published book about my first Kilimanjaro climb. I kept being compelled to keep, keep sharing the story because I knew that I wasn't alone. And I feel like over the years, and this just happens with any practice that you do with writing, you continue to go deeper and deeper into the story. I mean, the self-published book of Fat Woman on the Mountain is about my first Kilimanjaro climb, which was after a significant weight loss. And it was written in a way that was kind of like, if if I can do it, you can do it kind of thing. So it was very ego-driven. And so when I look at my subsequent stories and books and work, it's more about just sharing the story as it is instead of with some kind of agenda of what I want people to do. How does it feel having three books out there and having them, you know, they're fixed in time once they're bound, like they're not changing. 
How do you feel about that? <laughs> Let's see. How do I feel about all three books fixed in time? Well, in many ways, it's it's just a history book in, at this point in my life. And how the stories are interpreted is moving, right? People will look at them as the way that my thoughts and and feelings have changed over the year and have evolved. I mean, now I'm working on a book called uh, about the science of binge eating with Dr. Ralph Carson, because I want people so much to understand, you know, whether you're in the midst of a struggle or, you know, somebody who is binging and while their intentions are incredible, knowing that there's a lot of things going on in the body and the mind that complicate and make it a little more challenging. But at the same time, there's incredible hope for recovery. And there's a lot of things that you can do, different kinds of therapies and such. And it's almost, it's a way of unraveling these messages of dieting and just eat less, move more. But it is, um, you know, it's a way to kind of reprogram our own minds. So while my stories are fixed in time, my story is ever evolving to what the next steps are for me. A quick aside to say that I love that books leave room for this, a reference for a point in time. Just as feelings change, cultural shifts happen. Language evolves, too. If my mission overall, right, and one of my big missions is to change the conversation of obesity, that means that I'm willing to share where my thoughts have been about it over the years and know that I'm willing to change that yes, I speak in the mental health realm all the time, but I think that the mental health realm needs to be talking to the medical realm. You know, the body positivity movement is important for the outdoors, you know, to have inclusive in the outdoors. And so we should all be talking to each other. And even if I shared my stories and fixed moments of time, they're starters for the conversation of here's what I thought at this point, And here's where I am now. You know, now in the next book that I write about the science of binge eating disorder, there will be things that I've unraveled internally since the other times that I've written those books. You know, I hope to take on the long trail in Vermont and write about that. You know, there will be new things that I'm tapping into because the journey of recovery, the journey of wellness, the journey of any kind of change or evolution is forever unfolding. We'll hear more from Kara after this. I know you've heard me talk a lot about third love on this podcast, and I'm going to do it again. And I do want to emphasize that one of the big reasons that I do talk about third love so much is because they offer more than 80 sizes, including half cup sizes. They've really thought about women's bodies when they're making these bras. They've incorporated data points generated by over 14 million women who have taken their Fit Finder quiz to design bras with breast shape and size in mind for a perfect fit. The subtext is that the perfect bra is the one that fits you best, and their love wants to help you find it. I took their Fit Finder quiz in about a minute, and the first time was out of curiosity to see if I was actually wearing the right bra size. It turned out that the answer is sometimes I was, Mine actually fluctuate due to hormonal and lifestyle changes, so the half sizes come in handy. It was fun, too, to learn about other breast shapes and identify mine, side set, so I could find the best fitting bra for me. The fact that Third Love bras are super cute is just icing on the cake. 
Third Love knows there's the perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash explore now to get your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash explore for 15% off today. Sustainability has always been at the core of SmartWool's values. Responsibly and ethically sourcing our wool is extremely important to us. Plain and simply, it's the right thing to do for kind of three reasons. One, the quality of our products, two, the animals themselves, and then three, the planet. This is Robin Hall, Director of Sustainability at SmartWool. She explained to me how Ziki Merino wool is part of SmartWool's sustainability efforts. Wool is an all-natural renewable fiber grown on sheep, you know? So from sheep being part of the natural carbon cycle, where sheep actually consume the organic carbon stored in plants and then convert it to wool, to every ZQ wool grower's required land environmental plan, to wool being biodegradable. Sheep are actually part of the climate solution. So what does it mean for Merino wool to be ZQ certified? So all ZQ certified wool is held to the highest standard in five areas, which are third party audited. Um, Number one, animal welfare. Two, environmental stability. Three, quality fiber. Four, traceability. And then five, social responsibility. SmartWool does have a longstanding partnership with ZQ, who's out of New Zealand, New Zealand Merino Company, and they consistently tighten their sustainability standards. And they do things like using R&D to create distance between other wool offerings. So together in the future, how SmartWool and ZQ are partnering, we're engaging on a much deeper level to perform new research that further extends the responsible wool supply. And then in addition, SmartWool is working with the actual ZQ wool growers on farm to build these really strong communities and help to ensure that their Merino farms thrive for generations to come within their families. We truly believe at SmartWool that our partnership with ZQ helps set our products apart from so many others in the market. Learn more at smartwool.com. Go far, feel good. We're back. This episode opened with a beautiful answer from Kara about how hiking gives her room to think. For her, nature invites thoughts in to be experienced versus pushing them down through binging. I, I really loved in the book how empathetic you were to your cousin Stacy that she was going to be not confronted by, but she was going to have this this room to think and to think about um, her parents who she'd lost and and you were just feeling for her that that was that was going to happen and happened on the hike. Yeah, I mean, I I think for anybody who's struggling with anything, if you do give yourself room to think. It can be painful, but sometimes you can come out on the other side of things. You know, Stacy remains to this day one of the strongest people that I know. She's gone through so much. She continues to go through so much. But I think it was beautiful how she put herself in the place of the outdoors to not only honor her father's spirit, but also to see if she could get to the other side of it, of what she was really struggling with. You, you mentioned nature and, and hiking as, as ways today that you let yourself sit in your thoughts. Um, what are some, some other ways that you do that? 
That's a great question because, again, you can't always get to a trail. And, <laughs> and, and if we're talking about the practicality of life, I think one of the most important things for me is to to hone in and feel centered and present. My most common technique is to pour a cup of tea, uh, some kind of herbal fruity tea. And if I'm ever feeling like I'm swirling with thoughts, emotions, or out of control, uh, I pour a cup of tea and I feel the hot tea on my, you know, the hot cup of my hands. I take a moment to feel the steam on my face, smell the aroma of it, and just take a minute to breathe and be around it. About a, a little more than a year ago, I lost a friend to cancer and I was traveling at the time and I knew that this was happening and I still, I mean, it's just the moment that you find out that, that she passed. It's really, really hard. And I was uh, in Houston to give a talk to some binge eating disorder patients at Eating Recovery Center there. And I had to take a minute before we got started and just have a cup of tea and feel present and then feel vulnerable enough to share that with the group that I had struggled with something and I needed to, I needed to take a minute before I got started. But then I also just need to think very deeply about what I need in this moment to move forward in a positive way. So when I binged, it was all about being in secret and alone. And I was traveling, which meant that I could have just ordered room service and I could have ordered anything. And I just knew at that moment in time when I learned Mia had passed that I needed to eat in public. So I made a point and I ate alone, but I ate at a restaurant. And so it was just, it was all these series of steps in my mind of what do I need to process this in a positive way honor the fact that I'm devastated. And so I ate my dinner and then I went back to my hotel room and I played YouTube videos of Mia singing. And there was something so healing about just, it was just the opposite of what I spent decades doing, right? It was, what do I need? How am I going to cope with this? But how am I going to honor the emotions that come up and take care of myself at the same time? So all of those things take a lot of different steps and they have nothing to do with the mountain. It's all about the presence and the mindfulness that you need to get through a situation. And at the very same time, when things feel beyond that, your your scope and ability to cope, that I knew that I there were certain people that I could call and talk about how I was feeling or come up with a larger plan if it was far beyond the scope of what I could manage. It sounds simple, but it's really hard to do, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, this is, you know, I think what's one of the most important acknowledgements that I've made in my life is because, you know, the culture is just, oh, just, you know, lose 30 pounds in a month. And it's almost like it's a begin and end, a before and after. And for me personally, the shift has been to understand that my brain and body function in a different way than someone who doesn't have binge eating disorder. And I say that not as an excuse, but an understanding. 
that when I have a stressor, that my brain will be the same. It doesn't matter that I've had stomach surgery. It doesn't matter that I have gone to like Africa's highest peak three times because my brain gets set on fire by food marketing in a different way than someone else does. And my brain reacts to stress in a different way than someone who doesn't have an issue with binging. And so the acknowledgement that I have this same brain, but I have absolutely different tools to manage and deal with things is really an important acknowledgement, but also it's incredibly freeing when there is a moment that I just feel like I'm out of control. And you went and, and sought treatment and that helped you develop some of these tools? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I worked with an eating disorder specialist, but you know, again, that even has evolved and changed so much. I mean, when I talk about binge eating disorder, I mean, that only made it into the DSM five, which is this big book that helps somebody diagnose whether or not they have an eating disorder or any kind of mental health challenge. It only made it in just a few years ago. And so, yeah. And so it is the most common and least talked about eating disorder out there. And so, you know, just now there are some amazing residential treatment facilities that didn't even exist 10 years ago when I was in the darkest moments of binging, you know, when, when my daughter was first born and, and I was sleep deprived all the time and being sleep deprived is one of my biggest triggers. (laughs) And I was stressed about money again, and being stressed about money is one of my biggest triggers. So it has nothing to do with the idea that I love ice cream. It's all about not being able to manage the stress of life. And so even in that short period of time, the conversation has changed so drastically and the help that's available has changed so drastically. But I'm grateful for for all those early adapters who saw and recognized that my relationship with food was different. It was different than most people's and that they were willing to work with me and help me build skills that kind of helped me to come to that presence in the time of need. The reasons binge eating disorder isn't talked about enough are both complicated and self-reinforcing. Binging is done in private, and it's often a source of shame. So someone who doesn't experience it wouldn't necessarily know about it. People aren't always believed either, or they're dismissed due to biases we hold about body size. In many times, people with larger bodies are dismissed. And, and, and I want to say that, but at the same time, not everybody with binge eating disorder has a larger body, right? It's yeah. such a, um, oftentimes people who, who binge are, are dismissed, you know, there are some, there's some incredible work that, that says things like, you know, somebody who goes in to a doctor's appointment will be seen for less time than somebody who is, has a, a, you know, a more accepted body size. And so it's all these interesting and often is dismissed emotionally, mentally, physically. And so I think that a lot of times that this, this isn't looked at as an eating disorder. It's just an issue of willpower. You're weak, you're lazy, you're fat. And so there's so many things that kind of dismiss and discount the experience. And somebody is in agony about their body and food. If they are feeling to the point that they are sick, that's why I think a lot of times it's not talked about.
Going back to Kilimanjaro, that third time you were determined to summit because you hadn't summited the second time um, and then also you'd been spurred on by the the guides who um, you overheard talking about you um, at night. But I have since read that you don't think that peak bagging is, is the point, but sometimes it is. I, I, I'd be interested to hear um, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, in that particular case, uh, you know, going to the top of Kilimanjaro, which, you know, depends on how you define it. But for me, at on that third hike, that was to make it to Gilman's Point. That was our goal for the group. And to make it there was, was really important to me, not only to show the guides who were betting, like actually betting against me that I could do it, but also so that I could move beyond that peak. And over time, I think that that evolution of just hiking the highest mountains in the world has changed. And just because I've climbed Kilimanjaro doesn't mean that I need to look at all the other seven of the other seven summits or the six other summits uh, of the world and take those on. Instead, I can use that passion for hiking to do things that I just really, really want to do. For example, in March, I took on uh, Havasu Canyon, which is to the west of the Grand Canyon. I've always wanted to do it. It's 12 miles in, 12 miles out. And there's just this astounding turquoise waterfall against the backdrop of the Red Canyon. And it's just, I mean, the pictures are incredible. So I knew, I, I know from hiking that when the pictures are amazing, to see it in person is just magnified. <laughs> so these kinds of experiences of being able to go on foot where I normally wouldn't be able to go, that's what's important to me now. And so what you might be referring to is my blog of going to Alaska and when I went to Alaska, I had this feeling like, oh, geez, you know, I can't believe I'm all the way in Alaska and I'm not preparing for hiking all the way to the top of Denali. And so it just had this pang of guilt. And I thought to myself, that's that's ridiculous, right? Because first of all, you're in Alaska with your husband and your oldest daughter. You're going to Denali National Park and you're going to hike everything that you can hike within the time frame that you're there. Meanwhile, I felt like that trip was really important because it unlocked this beautiful sense of adventure for myself and for my daughter. I went on a river ride. I touched a glacier. I saw a moose for the first time in my life. I can't believe I grew up in Canada and Vermont and I had to go all the way to Alaska to see a moose. <laughs> but I mean, it was about that, not about the peak. And so moving forward, Yes, Kilimanjaro was an incredible accomplishment. It won't be the last mountain that I hike. I will probably do Machu Picchu. I will probably do a lot of other mountains, maybe not as famous. I'd love to do the Tour de Mont Blanc. I'd love to do all these other things. But the point is that hiking needs to come naturally. It is part of my values, and it's not so much about going above and beyond the, the cloud line every single time. Because first of all, it's not practical. 
And second of all, you know, it's just, you don't want to have a goal that so far exceeds your budget (laughs) and Mm. your daily to-do list. I mean, I've got three kids and so I need to hike in a way that is, is fulfilling that works within my life and my schedule, but at the same time, I need to find things that keep that spirit going for me all the time. Yeah, yeah, if everything were just peaks and valleys, that would be, that'd be a tricky way to live. Right, and you know, one's knees can kind of give out <laughs> their point, <laughs> that kind of lifestyle. And so if, if something were to happen where I couldn't, you know, hike those giant peaks and valleys all the time, I mean, I would still make nature an adventure, most importantly, adventure as part of my experience on this earth. I believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Adventure will always be part of Kara's life. As for what's next, she has some life-changing news that isn't quite public yet. I'll make sure to share it in the She Explores podcast Facebook group when it is. For now, Cara's really excited about hosting her first moving mountains retreat in New Jersey in January. You know, I've always done speaking engagements, but these moving mountain retreats is about interacting with people in person. And no, I'm not a counselor, but I think that sharing my story and having these empowering speakers and, you know, Myrna Valerio is one of them that's going to be at the first one and Jennifer Cassetta. Uh, Myrna Valerio is this epic plus size ultra marathoner. And then Jennifer Cassetta is this black belt um, confidence coach. And so she, she does the art of badassery. So together, you know, we're going to have this full day of just changing how people feel about themselves and their journey forward so that they can have this really immersive experience with wonderful food and a really special venue so they can explore the things that they want to do in their lives. And I think in many ways, that's the next step in my journey. And so the one on January 12th would be the first in many of those kind of experiences around the country. I want to leave you with one last thought from Kara about the growing community of plus size adventurers. I mean, the coolest thing about all of this is knowing that from those first steps of not feeling like you belong to suddenly there is just such a great community out there of people who are just doing it. So for example, I'll be um, going to one of Jenny Bruce's hikes in New Jersey uh, at the end on November 2nd. And, and like I get to meet her and I admire her from afar and I get to know her and Myrna is a friend now and all of these people who, and Emmy, you know, supermodel Emmy, who I've admired for decades, I mean decades, <laughs> and her work is a friend now. And, you know, we have plans to hike together someday soon. She lives in New Jersey, who knew, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so all these people are just out there doing it. And the more I feel like we have to just keep taking steps out there so that other people can continue and join in on on this journey and and so at some point soon down the road that this won't be such an anomaly right it won't be such a big deal to talk about outdoor gear it won't be such a big deal to talk about you know that somebody who is of a different body size shape color etc background gender is out there hiking that we just hike 
and, and we do the things that we love just because we love them and not, there's no other kind of qualifying statement. So I'm just excited to be a part of it, but I'm also excited about what's coming down the road because of it. Big thank you to Cara Richardson-Waitley. I'll link where to find her online, as well as Gorge and the First Moving Mountains Retreat in the show notes and on the episode landing page via she-explorers.com. If you're struggling with binge eating disorder or another eating disorder, you can call the National Eating Disorder Helpline at 1-800-931-2237. I'll list some resources in the show notes as well. Thank you to our sponsors, Danner, Smartwool, and Third Love. As always, links are listed on the episode landing page, on the show notes, and via she-explorers.com. If you enjoy listening to She Explorers, it'd be an honor if you showed your support by leaving a review wherever you listen or by sharing the show with a friend. Another way to show your support is to join our She Explorers podcast Facebook group. With over 6,000 members, it's a network of incredible, adventurous, outdoorsy, quote, quote, as we like to say, women from all over North America and also in other parts of the world, too. I found that we've become an incredible resource for each other, and it's added a lot to my life. Music is by Josh Woodward, Lee Rosever, Kay Angle, Swelling, and Mont Plaisir. Until next week, have fun out there.